knowing your enemy. The Bible does talk about enemies a lot. A lot of people who sort of have a very generic view of Christianity, that being a Christian person is being nice, um, will have a hard time with this message in the Bible because the Bible recognizes that we live in a broken world and that sometimes we're going to have trouble and sometimes we're going to have enemies. In fact, if you sort of look through the Bible and you have a concordance or something like that and you look up the word enemy, you'll find that the word enemy is used throughout the Bible a lot and it actually talks about lots of different things. Today we're going to talk about three enemies that we can know, okay? Truthfully, the Bible includes at least six or seven major enemies, but six or seven points, you guys will be asleep and we'll be in the middle of next service, okay? So I picked the number, the top three most important enemies. By the way, uh, let me just give you an example of some of the enemies we won't cover. For example, the Bible talks about death as an enemy, right? All of us hate death. I mean, we hate the idea of dying. We, we look forward to being with God, but death is like the final enemy that the Bible talks about. And that's, it uses that imagery because it's the last battle, the last struggle that we have to go through as believers, and then we're done. No more struggling, no more fighting, no more tears, no more issues, nothing. We're good, okay? We like to say we're good now, but we don't know what good is until we stand in the presence of God. All right, so know your enemy, though. We're going to talk about three different enemies and three different struggles that we have um, and deal with these issues here this morning. Eight-week series in, really nine. It's choose your own topic. Today is week nine. Uh, we'll call it a bonus. Today is understanding the struggles of our lives, you know, because all of us have struggles and we all struggle with this issue of, of people who don't like us and enemies and, and, and issues like that. We're not only going to talk about people, we're going to talk about three different things, but we're going to see what the Bible says. Because it's topical, we're going to look at a lot of different passages, skip around this morning to try to cover this topic, this idea of what the Bible says about knowing your enemy. All right, let's start with number one real quickly. Your enemy can be other people. If you have your handout, you want to follow along, your enemy can be other people. Now, I'm emphasizing can because a lot of people that you know are not your enemy. David is not my enemy. Not my enemy. No one in here is my enemy. At least I don't think so, right? And I'm not your enemy. Even though sometimes when I challenge you, you might feel like it for a little while after the message. So enemy the Bible speaks of our enemies and sometimes it can be other people. But let's break this down and understand a little bit more what the Bible is trying to say. Colossians 1.21 says this, You who were once far away from God, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. So in Colossians, we're talking about this idea that people can be separated from each other. They can be enemies of each other. And more importantly, they can be enemies of God. Now, People in rebellion against God don't like God's allies. So let's just set it up real simple here so that we can understand. First of all, every person that's born into this world is born with sinful nature, okay? If you raise in different contexts, you might call it original sin. You might call it, you know, just being a sinner, sinful, whatever. I mean, it's going to have the word sin in there somewhere, okay? Adam and Eve were born into the world and they did not have any sin or issue in their lives. In fact, Adam and Eve really had no enemies, Okay, up until the moment that sin entered in the world. They had no enemies, um, which is why when we are in heaven, we will also have no enemies because that will be completely disbanded. It'll, that whole order of things will be completely gone. So what happened is, is that people began to rebel against God. Adam and Eve, they listened to the serpent, who, by the way, had also rebelled against God. We don't know how or why or what issue. We'll talk about that in a minute. The serpent rebelled against God pulling Adam and Eve into that rebellion against God, and suddenly people now are in rebellion against God. 
Why do we use the word rebellion to talk about sin? Well, because that is exactly what people did. When we think about it, God basically said, listen, here's the world. I created it. I want you to live according to the purposes that I have set up for the world, which include don't eat that particular fruit. You can have any other fruit. You can do whatever you want to, largely, but don't eat this one thing. Don't do this one thing, okay? And they did it, and they brought sin into our world. Really, that story is the same story that all of us share today. Why? Because when we're born, we come out of the womb. We don't come out as a beautiful little baby who's perfect and flawless, right? Because we come out of the womb already screaming and crying and mad because mama didn't bring the milk fast enough or whatever the case may be, right? That's what happens. And so we want things our way. When we cut, we are born into this world not desiring what God wants for us, we're desiring what we want for ourselves. And so that sinfulness, that brokenness, that selfishness pervades our life. Now, if someone may um, think about this issue, they may say, well, this idea of enemy seems a little bit strong because I don't feel like I'm not a Christian, but I don't feel like I'm an enemy of God. But let me sort of explain what happens. How many of you have seen Star Wars? This is a very archetypal movie when it deals with this issue. Even ladies, you guys have seen it, right? And you have what? The rebellion against the main people, right? And eventually it leads to what? War, right? Because war is what happens. Whenever there's been a rebellion, eventually it leads to bloodshed and war. And so what happened is, is that people decided that they were going to do what they wanted to do more than anything else, more than what God says. And eventually it, that that split, that rebellion leads to a war between God and people. The problem is people can't win that war, right? I mean, you can't, you know, beat God. Although it's interesting because in the Old Testament, people tried to beat God, right? I mean, in the times of before Noah, in the times of the patriarchs, people tried to beat God. Why do you think they built a, tried to build a tower of Babel all the way up to heaven? Do you think they wanted to go up there because they wanted to talk to God or because they thought they were going to build a, temp, uh, a tower all the way up there and take heaven by force. That's right. That's what they were going to do. And so what happens is, is that people in their hearts, they didn't want to do what God wanted to do. They want to do their own thing. And so what happens is, is that when we become a believer, and we'll talk about this at the end, when we become a believer, we are basically saying that we are not going to rebel against God anymore. That's what that means. When we say, I accept Jesus Christ into my heart as my Savior, um, unfortunately, a lot of us do that without understanding what that means. But a big part of that, what that means is we're not going to sin against God anymore. And by not sinning against God, what does that mean? That means we're not going to rebel against him. We're going to listen and obey to what he tells for us to do in our lives. Now that's hard, right? Because we talked about in the last week or two that obeying is very difficult. Nobody wants to obey anyone. You don't want to obey me and you shouldn't have to, but you don't want to obey other people. You don't want to obey anybody. You just want to obey yourself. So people in rebellion against God don't like God's allies. Here's what happens. You who are here today who are in Christ, you have decided that you're not going to rebel against God. So what you're going to do is you're going to be on God's team. But here's the problem. Not everyone around you wants to be on God's team. They're still on the other team, which creates friction and creates problems. You know, like in the, uh, in the action movies where the, about like any of the mobster movies, like the mafia and that sort of thing, right? 
And there's the mafia, and they're being cool and tough, and they're doing organized crime and being bad guys and stuff. And then they have someone who's a snitch, right? What does a snitch do? Tell on them. That's right. Goes over to the cops, the good guys, supposedly, and, and tells on them, right? So what do the mafia want to do with a snitch? Right? Because he switched teams. Listen, I, I mean, I, when I lived in New York, um, <laughs> you know, there's a huge rivalry between the Red Sox and the Yankees, right? If you watch baseball. And I happen to have the opportunity to see, I've actually seen both of them play each other in their own stadiums. But when I was in New York, uh, the opening game for that year that I was still living there, the Red Sox played. And that was right after they won the World Series, right? How do you think the Yankees fans treated the Red Sox fans while I was there? Not with grace. Can I say it like that? Not with grace. Of course, if you've never been in a professional sporting event, it can get a little vulgar. Um, but that's the way it was. Why is it? Well, because they're on different teams. We should not be surprised that people who are in rebellion to God don't necessarily like us. Now, we need to break this down a little farther because if we leave it there, we will end up burning Qurans and acting crazy, okay? Um, because this is not necessarily, the response to this is not what God calls us to, but we need to at least set it up. People who are in rebellion against God generally don't hate you yourself. They just hate the fact that you are a snitch and have gone and have left the cool way of life and have gone over to the good way of life. How many of you have ever been called a goody two-shoes because you went to church? Or were a Christian, right? Some of you, okay, ladies, I guess that's more prevalent than guys, right? Well, people are mad and they become your enemy because they don't like it that you have gone over to the other team. You're supposed to be on their team, which, by the way, is the bad team. You're supposed to be the Oakland Raiders, right? Just kidding. I don't know. They're like the bad guys, right? I don't know. Anyway, you're supposed to be like them. You're not supposed to be like the good guys. But the problem is, is that we who are believers, we have already decided that we're not going to be like the world anymore. But when we leave the world, as we've talked about uh, last week, when we leave the world... The problem is it creates friction in our lives because people in the world don't like us leaving that. Now, here's where it becomes really important when we talk about this issue. We must be wise and different. And oh, let me just stop here. Okay. Can I like throw a flashing light up on the word wise? Because wisdom is what a lot of churchgoers lack when they deal with people in the world. Why do I say that? Well, because wisdom will teach us how to interact with people who don't like us. We must be wise and differentiate between those who oppose God intentionally and unintentionally. Okay? Let me give you an example. Let's say you're at work and there's someone there who is always like, okay, you guys were here last week, who's always like, hey, let's go to Hooters. We just landed the account. Let's celebrate. Let's go to Hooters. And you say after the message last week, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to, you know, I don't feel like it would be honoring God or honoring my family or honoring my wife for me to go there. Even though their wings are good, I understand, you know, I don't feel like it would really honor God. And, and, and so the thing is, is that then, and I just use that because that's a simple example. It's an easy example. Um, and, and so the thing is, is that then the people say, oh, well, you know, you're really a goody two-shoes. You, you're a sissy. You're a wimp. You're, you know, you're all into that God stuff. You don't know how to have fun. You're just totally not, you don't know how to have fun. 
And that hurts, right? That hurts our feelings because we don't want to be called names. We don't want anyone to tell us that we don't know how to have fun, right? No one wants to hear that. As a Christian, I think I know how to have some fun. I enjoy myself, right? And, and I mean, you know, uh, we have fun here. And yeah, I mean, this, you know, what's fun anyway? Is being passed out somewhere, is that fun? I don't know. We can debate that. But the thing is, we want to talk about how we deal with people who say that kind of stuff to us. Because the problem that comes in is that we need to understand whether they are intentionally or unintentionally trying to be our enemy. The person that says that, I would argue, largely is not intentionally trying to be our enemy. What does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that they are not getting up in the morning and saying, I hate God, I hate God, I'm going to try to destroy all of his people. That's probably not what they're saying. What they're doing is they're getting up in the morning and they're saying, my life is miserable. And we know, parentheses, because I don't know God, my life is miserable, so I just want everyone else to be miserable with me. That's what they're saying. When a person is unintentionally becoming our enemy, what is going to be the response to them? When a person is intentionally trying to be our enemy, what is our response to them? Well, in my mind, they're a little bit different. If someone comes to you and has a gun at the door of your house and is trying to kill you, especially because you're a Christian, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to just lay there and let them shoot you? Well, the Bible doesn't say that for the record, okay? I know that there's a pacifistic streak in our world, but I'm not convinced the Bible says that at all. And so when we deal with intentional and unintentional issues, I mean enemies, then we have to be wise. Now, let me clear this up real quick here. Let me get to my next slide. All right, the fact that people can be enemies of God. In fact, all people start out that way. But the fact that people can be enemies of God does not change God's call for us to love them. All right? Now, loving someone who unintentionally is your enemy is different than loving someone who is intentionally your enemy. Fortunately for us, because we live in America, most of us will only meet people who are unintentionally our enemy. That's good because, frankly, well, here's the thing. Let me say it like this. Can I be honest? First service, can I be honest? The, the diff, okay, it's easy to be a Christian when you deal with people who unintentionally are your enemy. It's much more difficult to be a Christian with people who are intentionally your enemy. Let me say it another way. When we deal with people who are in rebellion against God and they're just, <clears throat> their life is not good and they just want everybody else's life to be like theirs, it's easier for us to love them because they're more annoying than they are painful. But when we deal with intentional people, people who intentionally want to hurt us, that becomes a bigger problem. For those of you who have lived in other parts of the world where you face persecution, how do you love someone who persecutes you? You know, I mean, as I've shared the example before, when I've been on the border of Sudan in the UN refugee camp there teaching pastors, um, there are pastors who have been mutilated by Muslims from North Africa, right? And how do you love a Muslim who is desiring to mutilate you and kill you? By the way, I have to say this, and I hope nobody will get mad, but it's really difficult to have a conversation about Islam in our world today because the media so skews it and so pushes it off as being something that it's not. 
Um, I, you know, I mean, again, how do you, I mean, without getting too far along on this train, because I don't want to, to get off the track, but how, I mean, how do you deal with people who have been mutilated, whose family's been killed by radical Muslims or by anyone else? It doesn't have to be them. It could be radical whatever, although, again, it tends to lay in one area or another. So what do we do? Because not everyone is our enemy, right? I mean, there's going to be some people who love us because we are believers, right? Hopefully everyone who comes to BVC will at least try to love each other because we're all believers in Christ and one day we're all going to end up in the same house. So might as well just get used to each other and love each other now. But then there's going to be people that we deal with that are out there in the workplace and out there in our world and our neighbors who don't love God, but they're not really intentionally trying to be your enemy. They are your enemy in a sense because they're enemies of God. But one act of love from you can change all that. Why? Because if you show love to them and it opens the door of their heart to God, guess what? They go from being an enemy of God to being on the same team of God. It's like they were a raider and then suddenly, huh, they're a 49er or whatever the case may be, right? Like magic. Although I do not think the 49ers are an angelic team at all. Okay, so let me just get that straight right now. This doesn't change God's call for us to love them. The difficulty for us is to be able to love people who are enemies intentionally. By the way, how many of you have ever read the Psalms? If you haven't, you should definitely read it from time to time um, in your Bible study. The Psalms, David talks a lot about enemies there. Why? Because a lot of his enemies are the ones who want to come and kill him. As Christians, when we talk about enemies, we are called to love enemies but I still believe that does not mean that we become a doormat. A lot of people quote the passage um, where Jesus says, if someone comes to hit you, turn to them the other cheek, you know, that sort of thing. But the problem is when you look at the way Jesus uses the left hand and the right hand of that passage, he doesn't just actually say turn the other cheek. He says turn to them the right cheek from the left hand. And what he means is if someone insults you by slapping you with the left hand on the right cheek, then you're supposed to let it go. Give them the other cheek. He doesn't say if someone hits you with the right hand as if to kill you. He says if someone slaps you, that's what he says. And so the thing is, is that when we deal with this issue of enemies, no matter how difficult the enemy is, we are, we are called to love them. There are going to be a few people in this world who are intentionally trying to be your enemy. And those people, you need to love them, but you need to be careful and you need to be wise when you deal with them because they will kill you and they will hurt you. Um, I want no one to be under illusion here. There are lots of countries in our world where if you go with a Bible in your hand into that country and say, hey, everybody, I'm here to talk to you about Jesus, they will kill you. They will kill you. Okay? Somehow, we still have to love those people. And that's tough. That's where the rubber meets the road, and that's where it becomes difficult. Fortunately for us here in America, though we have it easier because we have the ability to be able to be surrounded by people who are not intentionally trying to be an enemy of God. More often than not, they are unintentionally trying to be the enemy of God. Now, where do you come in into this situation? Let's apply this for a second. Where do you come in? The average churchgoer in America is lazy. Can I say that? Lazy. You know why? Because we come to church, we sit in church, we just love ourselves, we have our games and our Xboxes and our movies, and we're happy but we're not out there trying to change the world. A lot of Christians in other countries who face persecution 
are more active in trying to change their world for Christ than the average American believer because the rubber meets the road for them. They have to love or be killed. That's really what it comes down to. For us, as uh, the average American churchgoer, we can just be lazy and just be like, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, we have the freedom in this country to be able to worship how we want. And that freedom means that we can get up on Monday morning and make a difference in our world and in other parts of the world. We can make every day be devoted towards that. We have so much wealth and so much free time compared to other parts of the world. I mean, nobody has to go out and, and, and plant their own beans and cut their own goat today, do they? Anybody stewing goat today? Anybody planting beans today? No, we don't have to do that. Well, a lot of us will go and watch football, as we can see by attendance. You know, we'll watch football today, right? But it does not, and by the way, I'm not against football, nor am I against watching TV in, in reasonable amounts. But the thing is, we have such ability here in the U.S. to transform our society and the rest of the world, and we don't do it. And that's why I fear the gospel has left the West and is moving to the East and the South as fast as it can go. So what we must do is be able to love those people around us. By the way, the Bible says this, Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. If your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. You will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. And that's true, right? When we love other people who want to hurt us, especially those people who are doing it unintentionally, especially the people who are not just, I hate God 100%, but who are just against God because they don't want to, they haven't submitted to him, they haven't been willing to obey him. Those are the kind of people that when we love them and we forgive them and we help them, we will see them be transformed into wanting to know God and wanting to commit their lives to him. All right, secondly, real quickly here this morning, is your enemy is God's enemy. So the enemy that you face, first of all, it can be other people around you. Second of all, it can be God's enemy. Now let's talk about this briefly here this morning because I want to spend more time on part three. Here's what the Bible says. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. So the Bible does present the idea that there is a devil, there's a Satan who is out there who is uh, willing and, uh, and desiring to accuse us and attack us as believers. Satan was the first really to rebel against God as far as we know. Now, let me just caution you here because first of all, Satan is not really his name, it's more his title, okay? Um, Satan is not really his name. The Bible doesn't really give him a name. I know that we call him Lucifer and Satan and devil and stuff like that. But the Bible doesn't really actually spend a lot of time dealing with who he is, but more of his function, okay? So Satan in the original language means accuser, someone who accuses. By the way, we, I've shared this here before, but uh, Satan is also someone who, uh, Satan, the word originally in the original language, also means prosecutor. How many of you know what a prosecutor is? Okay, good. Some of you know what a prosecutor is, right? A prosecutor is someone who does what? A lot of times. Accuses a person and produces evidence against a person. And so what happens is, uh, of course, in our society, a prosecutor can be a good thing because we want the prosecutor to protect our society from people who have done crimes. But in this situation, Satan prosecutes people because they have done also done crimes. So actually, Satan in some ways... See, here's the funny thing. If you really read the Bible from cover to cover, Satan, I don't want to say he's not a bad guy because that would be not accurate. But there are times where Satan is not presented as being evil or mean. He's presented as doing his job. 
if a little bit, what do you call it, aggressively, right? The reason why is, is because the Bible, Satan, for whatever reason, the Bible presents Satan as someone who goes around the world to accuse everyone of what they've done wrong. But what's the problem with, if we make Satan the root of all evil? Because he's not, according to the Bible. What happens if we make Satan the root of all evil? The things that Satan accuses of are what? The things that Satan accuses of, the, let me say it real clear. The things that Satan accuses each of us for before God is what? The things we have done. Satan doesn't necessarily bring false accusation, although he is willing to do that. But the fact that you, you know, lied, the fact that you cheated, the fact that you stole even when you were in third grade, that's all admissible in court by Satan. The reason why we need Jesus is because when Satan brings all of the evidence of all of the messed up mistakes that we've ever made in our lives before God, we will have no defense over it. This is what most people don't understand about Judgment Day. Because everybody thinks that on Judgment Day, that because we watch the movies, that on Judgment Day, God's going to be there, seated on the throne, and we're going to walk in and we're going to have to explain what we did good and what we did bad. But that is not what's going to happen. For those people who don't, first of all, for those who know Christ, we've already covered this, we're going to be, we don't have to go to judgment because God has already extended mercy to us through Jesus Christ. But the rest of the people are in for a rude shock. And I'll tell you why. Because when they stand before the throne, they are not going to stand there and have a chance to talk. Uh, uh, not yet. They're only going to get their chance to talk once the Satan, the prosecutor, has come in and presented all the evidence against you. And then you have no defense attorney other than your own, well, but, well, but, well, but. You know in the movies where the guy always says, I want to represent myself. Get out of here, lawyer. I'm going to do it myself, right? But in the real world, that doesn't work very well, right? Well, sometimes, okay. In this situation, though, you're dealing with an adversary who is way beyond you or I's ability to cope with, okay? Because Satan has been taping, in a sense, if we take a biblical idea, he's been taping our lives since the day we were born. Every single wrong that we've ever done will be on display in beautiful 3D on the day of judgment. And after sitting there for hours and hours of all the mistakes that we've made, the person that stands at Judgment Day will have no defense against the accuser. None. What are they going to say? Well, yeah, but, well, but, well, but. Yeah, I did that, but. I did that, but. I did that, but. You know, it's like when you're speeding and you're going 100 miles an hour in a 55, right? And the cop pulls you over and says, you're speeding. And you say, yeah, but. What, what defense are you going to have? You're going 100 miles an hour in a 55. I mean, you better be pregnant or dying, Right? At that point, you know, in my own life, when I was younger, I was uh, in a state that has no, nothing in it, no people, okay? It's one of the very small populated states in the West, and I was driving through just a, a road, totally empty, nothing on it, just farmland out in the middle of nowhere, and I was going way above the speed limit, probably doubling the speed limit. And the cop pulled me over, right? And what did I do? I said, sir, I am guilty. Please have some mercy. I did it. I admit I did it. 
Just please have some mercy. That was the best I could do. I was doubling the speed limit. There was no opportunity for me to do anything. If I said, yeah, but one time, he would have just thrown the book at me, you know? And he was very nice. He just gave me a normal ticket. He reduced it so I didn't have, you know, any reckless or anything like that. Just normal ticket. Why? Because I said, I did it. I'm sorry. Please have some mercy. I was just very much in a hurry trying to get back home. So what happens is, is that Satan was the first to rebel against God. Satan is the accuser. Now in the New Testament, because the Old Testament deals more with the accusatory, prosecutorial nature of Satan. Okay, Satan is prosecutor. In the, Old Te- in the New Testament, we have Satan more as being the enemy. But we want to be careful here because you need to read the Bible in its entirety. The Bible uses two motifs to depict Satan. One is the prosecutor and one is the enemy of God. Using only one misses the point. Here's what happens. Look, if we, if we just took the Old Testament idea of Satan and we, we stripped it down in its very simplest form, ripped it out of the Bible, we would see Satan solely as a prosecutor who wants to accuse people because that's his job. In the New Testament, we would see Satan as being an evil dragon who is desiring to wrestle and fight against God till the end of time right? Those are the two motifs, but those are based on us trying to, based on a motif that's trying to present an image to you. The truth is in the middle. The truth is the fact that Satan is an enemy of God. He is the enemy of God, okay? He is our enemy because we're on God's team. That's what he doesn't like about us, okay? The fact that we are on God's team. He is not necessarily, I suppose, the enemy to people who aren't on God's team, right? Because he already has the evidence against them. He doesn't need any more evidence against them. He just doesn't want them to go over to God's team, right? For those who are on God's team, they present a problem to Satan because he can't, he can't win, right? I mean, the prosecutor wants to show up on judgment day and just pick on Chuck here for a second. He wants to be, the prosecutor wants to show up on judgment day and to be able to have all the evidence he's prepared against Chuck to be able to present against Chuck. But what's the problem? Chuck's not going to be there, right? Because on judgment day, we're not going to be there if we're a believer in Christ. The Bible says in Revelations that we will face the judgment seat of Christ, which is the little stool that Christ sits on. And he says, I have died for you. You are forgiven. All the things that the prosecutor wants to accuse you of, you are forgiven and you're set free of it. So we need to understand the way Satan works. Satan is not just some crazy devil with horned, you know, horns and a red cape who is just a suicidal this is not a word, who is just a sociopathic murderer sort of thing. Hitler is not an archetype for Satan. Satan is way smoother than that. Way, way smoother. Way smoother. Okay? So here's the thing. Satan's power over you, though, is very limited. This is the thing that most Christians get hung up on because they try to make Satan to be the one who is the one who is going to destroy you. It's going to ruin my life. How many of you, and don't raise your hand just, just for sake of privacy, but how many of you have been to a church where Satan was like every sermon they talked about Satan and Satan was going to ruin you and destroy you? So maybe some of you, I'd ask you not to raise your hand, so I don't know how many, but there are a lot of churches out there like that. And I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm saying the emphasis is on the wrong side there. Because Satan's role is not really to destroy us. He doesn't have that power. Satan doesn't have the power to end your life today. By the way, we look at the book of, what book is a great book about the limits of Satan's power? What book in the Bible? 
Anybody know? Job. Very good. Right. Job. Job is the one. Because it's clear from the book of Job that God has certain, uh, certain guidelines that Satan has to operate in. So even though he's... And by the way, what does it say in Job that Satan does? He goes around the world all the time taping people. I mean, he doesn't use the word taping. But he used the word patrolling in, in, uh, or watching in Hebrew. They didn't have the word taping. But I would argue taping is the word that we would use today. He goes all over the world taping people, watching them, because he's trying to get evidence against them to be able to prosecute them, right? If he can stir up problems in your life too, is he going to do it? Yes, he is. That's what he does, right? Because guess what? The more evidence he has, the better his life is, Right? So if he can bring a lots of false accusations against people, if he can stir up problems to create accusations against people, then he loves it. As an example, if you have a pastor or a ministry leader or a missionary who loves God and Satan can get their hearts to, 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 to you know, lust at, let's say, just to make it easy, you know, lust after someone and have an affair and cheat on their spouse, he'll do it. Why? Because he gets more evidence and he gets more joy out of having more evidence to produce before God, especially when he gets to accuse Christians. Because he loves to accuse Christians more than anything else, even though he doesn't realize his accusations do not have power. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. That is why Satan's accusations have no power. Satan's power over you is very limited. Why? Number one, he has no power to condemn you. He has no power to destroy you. He cannot do that. His accusations do not have any power because of the blood of Christ that's been shed in your life. Once the blood of Christ has been shed and has been poured over you, the blood of Christ removes all of your sins when you ask for forgiveness. So when you ask for forgiveness, the blood of Christ takes away all of your sins. Satan has no power to destroy or condemn you in any way. He cannot destroy your life here on earth. He cannot condemn you in heaven. Okay, those, those are big things. Those are off the table, completely off the table. Beyond that, Satan does not have the power to make you sin. He only has the power to tempt, the power to encourage, the power to cajole, the power to, you know, get you to think that your life is miserable and think that you need to have an affair, think that you need to do drugs, think you need to do this, whatever. Um, he does not have the power to make you do those things. Guess who has the power to make you do those things? <laughs> we're going to talk. That's right. We're going to talk about that right now. Guess who the third, your greatest enemy is? Yourself. That's right. Yourself. Your greatest enemy is you. Why is that? Well, let's talk about it. Um, the Bible says this. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Here's what happens. We start out life opposed from God, right? We start out life rebelling against God. The Bible calls that our sin nature. But what happens is, is that those of us who are here this morning who have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, we have committed our lives to Jesus, and now we are like, we are on God's team. But here's the problem. Even though we have now transferred our allegiance to God's team, we are still stuck in this sinful world. And we have the ability to sin even if we don't want to. Let's do this. This is what Paul says. Before we are a Christian, we have the ability to sin and we want to sin. Why? Because that is our nature. When we become a Christian, we no longer want to sin, but we still have the ability to sin because we're in this world. Once we die and go to heaven, we will not want to sin and we will not have the ability to sin because there will be no temptation to sin. We will be perfect. We will be remade in the image of God. There will be no more any bad stuff, okay? Everybody get it? Before Christ, want to sin, can sin. 
after Christ, as believer, don't want to sin, but still can sin. In heaven, don't want to sin, cannot sin. Okay? Because there will be no temptation nor desire in your life to sin. I can't explain that, but you can ask someone who was an alcoholic who gave it up like that because of God. They, I don't, I've never had that happen to me personally, but they'll tell you I, so God took away all my desire for alcohol. Right? And it's going to be the same way. When we're in heaven, God will take away all our desire to sin and to do what's wrong. We just won't want to do it anymore. It'll just be, it won't be an issue. It'll be a non-issue. Um, come close to God and come, well, God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and, and the world. Um, our own sinful hearts keep the rebellion alive. This is one of the struggles that we face because our own, our own hearts, that's what keeps it going, right? If we can st- stop sinning, but that's the problem that we don't. Our biggest enemy is ourselves. Why? Because the brokenness that's in our lives, the sin that's in our lives, tries to get us to do what is wrong all the time. It tries to get us to do that which we don't want to do. Why can we not live according to what God wants us to do? Is it God that's stopping us living that way? Is it Satan that's physically holding us back? No, although he likes it when we don't live according to what God wants to do. Who is the one that's doing it? It's our own nature that fights against us. Paul talks about the fact that there's a thorn in his flesh that is constantly trying to get him to do what he doesn't want to do. In fact, Paul also says in his letters that what? I don't do the things that I want to do, and the very things I want to do, I just can't seem to do because there is a war that goes on in our hearts all the time. The Holy Spirit which, by the way, God gave to dwell in our hearts so that we might be able to have the power not to sin, the Holy Spirit and our broken flesh, which, by the way, flesh doesn't mean physical. It means our, our sinful cravings. They are constantly at war in our hearts. There's constantly a struggle there. Our own sinful hearts keep the rebellion alive. We began life as God's enemies, but now we are friends if we have committed our life to God. But the biggest struggle that we will face is you and I. Let me say it this way. The thing is, is that when you get up in the morning, the biggest battle that you're going to have is the sinful desire in your heart not to serve God. Satan's going to be there. Your neighbor is going to still throw trash in your yard or whatever stupid thing he does, right, to discourage you. But at the end, when all is sin done, it is your heart where the battle will be won or lost to serve God and to live for God. So somewhere in there, you have to decide who's going to win. By the way, in our American society, we've lost a part of the Bible. You know why? Because when we translate the Bible into English, we get this idea that we are supposed to connect with God intellectually, right? Intellectually know God. We get this idea that we're supposed to connect with God in our heart, right? We're supposed to love God and know God. But we miss the whole Hebrew idea of the gut, which is the will. We're supposed to willfully choose to do what God wants us to do. It's three parts according to the Bible. The mind, I was going to say the heart, the mind, the mind, the heart, and the will, the desire, the urge, the, the desire to do what God says. My friends, that is where most Americans, most of us fail because we may have a heart for God, we may have a mind for God, but we don't have the will we don't have the intentional desire to live for God. And that is why we do not seem to get God's will in our lives because we struggle against that. Let me take your question after service, okay? All right, good. But uh, well, I'll answer it. Why is that? Well, because you're constantly at war. 
that because there's a constant battle in your life, the problem is, is that, you know, you, you, we don't want to live, okay, here's the thing. We don't want to live as if there's war, right? We just want to live at peace. So it sometimes is easier when there's conflict. What do we do? Hey, when the, okay, if you're sitting at work and there's a person in the cubicle next to you and the person in the cubicle one next to you and the two people are in conflict because cubicle A person stole the stapler of cubicle B person, what do we do? Even if we saw cubicle A person steal from cubicle B person, what do we do? We just want to brush it under the carpet, don't we? We don't want to get involved. And so I think the biggest problem is, is that we don't want to get involved in the battle that's in our lives. And so instead of choosing to follow God, we would, it's easier and faster and better just to give in to not really being very serious about our relationship with God. And so we cannot do that, though, if we want to be serious about our relationship with God. The Bible says this. Let me conclude here. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son, right? So all of us, listen, at some point in time, we were enemies of God. But from this day forward, we do not need to be enemies of God anymore. We don't need to have enemies that can do anything against us. Even our own hearts and our own brokenness, brokenness cannot stand up against the power of the Holy Spirit if we are engaged with God. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning. Lord, maybe there's someone here who entered in the building this morning who is an enemy of God because they've never committed their life to Jesus. If they're here this morning, they can just say to God, Lord, I don't want to be your enemy anymore. I want to love you. I want to know you. I want to commit my life to you. Forgive me my sins, and I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. For the rest of us here this morning, Lord, we need to be able to understand our enemies. We need to love them when they're people. We need to realize that Satan, the, the adversary of old, is not someone who can destroy our lives. Tempt us, yes. But that the biggest battle we face is the sinfulness of our own lives and in our own hearts. Father, I pray today that you would help us to move away from our sinfulness. Help us to live our lives for you. Help us to be wise in our battle. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.